Okay, everyone, we want to welcome you to a special edition of ARCS Chat. My name is Robin Bauer-Kilgo. I'm one of your hosts this afternoon. And without further ado, I'm going to hand the mic over to the other host, John Robinette. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this very special edition. As Robin mentioned, I'm John Robinette. John, your mic is not working right now, so we might have to pop you back in and pop you back out. So um, our other co-host, Amanda Robinson, couldn't be with us today because she actually has to move some objects in her museum. Lucky her. So um, with that, we we uh, want to wish everybody, you know, health and safety at this very difficult moment uh, in, you know, both the history of the world uh, as well as our profession and hope that these extra discussions and podcasts um, have provided not only a little bit of relief from the relentless anxiety of coronavirus news, but also a dose of professional development, some real solutions, and also a sense of community to help us deal with these issues that we all face as a result of this virus. Today, we're going to focus on the solutions and community uh, as we investigate what will happen with our loans and exhibitions uh, that the virus has actually paralyzed. We will also dare to think about how this crisis ends and what to expect when the gears of society begin to turn again. With us to discuss the situation is the most epic group of shippers the world can assemble. Um, just a note, too, on the attendance. This group is assembled based on sponsorship to ARCS, as well as their availability. A bit availability. There are many shippers we invited but couldn't participate um, but those who could participate, uh, I will now introduce our platinum level sponsor uh, from ISAFAT, Jonathan Schwartz, the president, who's also, uh, I believe his title is art handler at Atelier 4. Uh, did I get that right, correct, correct Jonathan? Um, <laughs> art handler, sure. You can call me an art handler. <laughs> or, I've been an art owner. handler for 30 years, but yeah. <laughs> you would if you had to. Um, our gold level sponsors participating are Cook's Crating uh, from Los Angeles with their owner, Brian Cook, uh, here. From Philadelphia Atelier, Derek Jones, the execu uh, executive director, is here. Hello. From Turtle, from Turtle in the Netherlands, uh, Marco Osterweich, who's the director, is here. Hi, everybody. Silver level sponsors in participation are from Masterpiece, uh, the president of Fine Arts and Security Group, uh, John O'Halloran. Hi, everybody. Uh, the owner of Deedle, Fritz Deedle, is here. From Box Art in Brooklyn, the director of production, Meg Colbert's present. Hello, everybody. And I already mentioned Atelier 4. Bronze level sponsors include. Um, from Crozier, Paige Armstrong, who's an account manager. Hi, everyone. Simon Dent, the Museum and Exhibition Services Manager from Martin Speed is here. Martin Speed Hello, in the everyone. UK. Hello. From SIT Spain, Ana Tabuenca, the Director of Fine Art Department. Good morning, good afternoon. And last... Last but not least, from Transport Consultants International, TCI, Bob Simon, the president, is here. Hi, everyone. We would first like to thank these companies that we all depend on for their critical help, both now and always. And ARCS would specifically like to thank them for their continued support, because literally without them, ARCS would not exist. 
We also want to thank all of the sponsors in general. We only invited shippers onto this, but uh, we you know, have many other sponsors that are uh, from other aspects of the industry, which are also a critical role. I will be uh, listing them out at the end of the program. So with that in mind, uh, let's go ahead and get started. We already have a very active chat room. So uh, and a lot of people from all over, uh, mostly the US, it looks like right now. So um, first off, I want to I wanna go straight to uh, Jonathan as the president of ISAFAT. Are there any consistent requirements for disaster preparedness amongst the members? Uh, how, does, how does the threat of co coronavirus fit into uh, preparedness for this type of, uh, this type of planning? Well, crisis management was and still is a topic brought up perennially at ISAFAT. And as a matter of fact, years ago, um, back when Excel uh, commissioned risk surveyors to create GRASP, and uh, this is before Simon Hornby joined Crozier, um, Bob Crozier himself from our community back then put together best practices with some of the other members. Uh, and independently, many of us also started working on similar projects. Of course, none of that really um, addressed a plague because that's kind of what we have now. I mean, there are other, you know, uh, responses to emergencies that kind of fit into this same um, wheelhouse. Uh, the economic impact of uh, 2008, we're going to certainly see a, a whirlwind of, of um, possible major uh, downturns come from that. Um, so really, uh, right now, it's all about similar things that um, institutions are thinking about. How few can you uh, rely on in order to keep systems running and safely? Because at a certain point, um, you know, some people have serious deep pockets, but uh, others need to make sure that they have enough operating capital to, uh, to hit the ground running when there's a return. So there are furloughs. Furloughs are happening. They're a reality. Has anyone here not had to furlough any staff? Yeah? I'm not. How did, how did, how did you, how, Bob and Marco, how did you uh, manage that? Is that... Well, we're, do you we're just have small staff? Small, and we were conservative with how we deployed our money. And the advantage we have is that of the, our outside offices, other than New Jersey, they already work from their house, and so it gives us gave us the ability to keep on some continuity. And the money side is difficult but doable. Yeah, yeah. And how about you, Marco? Yeah, in the Netherlands, there was a, um, quite quickly after the crisis, the Dutch government came up with a, a package that for the next three to six months, all the salaries are compensated for companies that lose between 60 and 90% of their business, which in our case is the case. So we are expecting to get 90% of our salaries back from the government. I see. I see. Is anyone else uh, getting government assistance? Yeah, Anna from Spain. Yes, well, uh, in Spain, it depends on what uh, each company is asking to a state to be helped. Okay, so they are called ERTES, which is a temporal, like a temporal uh, status, 
when when you cannot uh, afford to to pay 100% to to your people so um SIT have asked for the 70% um it's something similar as as for healthcare in Holland uh but some companies in the same field uh have asked for the 100% and then that that means that those companies that have asked for the 100% they cannot operate at all they cannot simply they cannot work at all it would be illegal because they they are receiving the the 100% support because they suppose to not be able to 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 come into the in the company single euro so in you know in from our collections professional point of view we're all you know we have disaster plans out the wazoo continuity continuity i cannot cannot say this continuity of operations uh planning and uh and programming so so we're always sort of prepared for this. So when, you know, museums got the signal to lock down, everyone pretty much knew what to do and how their museum was going to operate. How is it uh, that companies like yours um, prepare for these situations? What does a disaster preparedness uh, look like from your point of view? Does anyone have any thoughts? Yeah, John. So, you know, uh, we we had a business continuity plan in place uh, to begin with, but, you know, like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan and then they get punched in the face. So we, um, you know, we have a corporate level HR and IT making sure, A, that people can work remotely and work from home and have the necessary tools to be able to work remotely, not even thinking that it would get to a point when we first started with this, uh, with a pandemic sort of plan in January. We started having meetings for this, thinking, well, what's the worst case scenario going to be if we can everybody get to the office? Can we work from home? So we started planning for that. And, you know, soon enough, that was the case. So for us, it was being that we're a nationwide country with a few hundred people having a hierarchy from corporate uh, IT, HR, and then individual teams regionally leading sort of a SWAT practice to make sure offices can be closed and clean, the staff can get home and can work properly and spreading the, uh, sort of workload across the managers regionally. Yeah, Anna? Uh, well, in, in our case, um, we immediately made a, a plan, but always uh, combining, combining the restrictions by the government, because in one side um, there were uh, restrictions for the movement, uh, for for the people, you know, you all know that, in in different levels, and in different timing. So we had to adapt the, the company uh, services and and people to that uh, restrictions. Uh, at the same time, we um, we made a plan to to finance uh, and ensure. The payments to all people. So um, I maybe should call it like a um, financial uh, strong. Um, sorry. Well, 
money at the end to, to ensure that the company can run, can uh, keep running, and to make a reactivation plan we made already. So that's the reason why SIT uh, have asked for, for the 70% and not the 100% of uh, ERTE by the state. This means that we, with this 30%, we can uh, work, we, we can do like a minimum service, so we can ensure that customs operations are open, that general cargo is uh, completely open, so we can operate at the end, we can move our trucks, Mm, we can do all kind of operations, but you know, in this in this uh, measure, like up to thirty percent of our time or possibilities for infrastructure. Derek, you had something to say. I think uh, you know, if on the Packer side, it's like a lot of us have plans for disasters as far as like a natural disaster, but I don't think anybody was, ever expects for there to be zero work for any of your employees or, you know, and almost overnight. So, you know, I think, you know, our storage warehouses are still manned and staffed so that we can protect the work that's there. But I don't think anybody on this call or webcast could even imagine that in a week's time, there's literally zero work for anybody, right? And that's just a trickle down. So, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing where you have a disaster plan that's based around more potential work most of the time, right? So if there's a disaster, it's the shippers and the packers are going to get more work and protect the artifact. In this case, the disaster is literally that there is no work and that everything that's, you need to just kind of clean up the mess that's existing and then stop. And so, um, it, you know, I think from our side of things, it's, it was really interesting. You know, our, our team has been fantastic. We've kept um, about 25% of our staff on to just, and they're all part-time, um, but we're like basically getting our plans for reopening back together. And that's all we've been focusing on and how to take care of the staff that we did have to furlough because we knew that that was something that was, it was inevitable. Um, and so we try to act as quick as possible with that, honestly, so that we could, you know, take care of healthcare for five months rather than take care of healthcare for a month. You know, we wanted to just take whatever resources we had in figuring that the government was going to have to step in um, to help everybody. And so we kind of focused on our strategy just being on when we reopen, trying to be a strong company again. Yeah, Meg. Yeah, just to, I mean, kind of chime in, we also had a disaster preparedness plan, but obviously it wasn't set up for, a pandemic um, specifically, it was more kind of concerned with a natural disaster like a hurricane. Um, but we were able to use aspects of that plan, um, mostly in terms of the leadership structure that we had identified in the case of a situation where we wouldn't be able to access the facility. Um, but at the beginning, before New York Pause went into effect, our main concern was um, establishing some sort of system for our employees so that um, we could keep them updated um, and keep them safe. And since we've shut down, sort of our main focus has been working to establish what the protocols for worker safety will be once we reopen in terms of what kind of PPE they will be wearing, how we will enforce social distancing in an appropriate and safe way in workplaces where 
traditionally we're not um, keeping six feet apart when we handle art or when we're packing a crate. And so that's been a major sort of uh, project for us right now during the closure is to kind of establish what we're hoping will be um, guidelines that you know, we can share with our partner institutions that we work with as clients, as well as other companies who do the same thing that we do so that we kind of see a universal approach to worker safety after the pandemic, so that we're all on the same page in terms of those issues. That was another question I had, is that everybody, I assume there's uh, some level of, of warehouse activity for pretty much everyone just be, for security um what are the um the protocols for taking care of your employees at this time uh fritz and jonathan you guys both wanted to say something go ahead fritz and then we'll go to jonathan so fritz can talk well you know really the, the i mean just to follow up on uh, what nick mentioned i mean it's like really establishing very strict protocols of uh, you know, social distancing, and then also splitting teams. And it's like I'm, you know, not only running Deeply International, but also some, some warehouses in Delaware. And obviously these warehouses need to continue to, to function and to run and to be secure. So there are crews working in those warehouses. And one of the ways that we can do that right now is to have a, a week off, a week on teams and making sure that the, the functions of the facility manager, there's more than one person who can actually uh, uh, make sure that the facility is safe and 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 all the systems are working in the facilities. Uh, so there's there's a lot of protocols that, that some of it we're, we're really inventing on the fly right now because again this is not something that any of any of us has planned for. This is all all new territory for us. Uh, but but those are the things that we we have to do: protective gear, strict protocols. There are still surprise, surprise. There's still every once in a while there's a truck showing up at the warehouse uh, uh, bringing something in that's already on the way. There's still some shipments moving around. I think we're going to come to some of these uh, uh, questions a little bit later on. What uh, what are the protocols for for, the, for those scenarios? I mean, how do we keep people safe? How, we, how do we keep the truckers outside, my people inside the warehouse, and still have a proper handoff of uh of property uh, and the safe hand of, of, of the property that we are handling. So all these things we, we are thinking about and we're addressing right now. And, you know, again, back to back to Meg, uh, you know, this is all new territory. We're making some of it up on the fly, but obviously uh, it's a big concern for everybody to make sure that your crew is safe and that you can continue to operate. Uh, you know, we need, these warehouses need to be staffed. There is no other way. We all know that. Jonathan? Yeah, yeah. Just a little bit to add to that. Um, you know, uh, in in the U.S. in particular, because uh, this is a little U.S. centric today, even though we've got some people from overseas on here. Um, but uh, we live in a sort of confederacy because states have their own little rules about uh, mandates that come in, and for the four locations that A four has, for instance. Um, it's a little vague in Florida what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. Whereas in New York, in California, and, uh, and even now in North Carolina, it's pretty much a pause. But even though we're not allowed to work, obviously for safety reasons and uh, just to check on climate, you know, there's only so much we can do remotely. A lot of those um, functions, we can take a look at our phone and see how the climate is on a variety of rooms. Uh, see how the uh, um, 
the closed caption uh, uh, videos working. Uh, but we have a rotation of a skeleton crew to be there because every so often, as Fritz mentions, a truck shows up. And if it's coming in for an existing account, we feel like we can't just, uh, you know, orphan it. We have to deal with it. And, uh, and the protocols that we've set for that has a lot to do with distancing because we don't know who those drivers are or what they've done. And we ask them for, uh, for them to show us outside what they have for us. And then we have them drive the truck into our loading dock and we take it out of the truck very carefully. We wipe it down and then they go away. We do the documentation, the signing of the paperwork separately. We're not anywhere near these people because, again, we don't know where they've been. And during the very end of this, uh, uh, as, as it was starting to shut down, we still had shuttles on the road that were on their way back uh, to the home office. And uh, one of them ha- uh, was tested in, in Texas, and he had a temperature, and we were concerned that, that he was infected, and we didn't get the test for uh, another four days back, and luckily he was negative. But, I mean, we had to keep him and his co-driver together and quarantine them until we knew that they were safe to go away. And this is crazy. Anyway, I, I deviated from the topic. Uh, I do want to, you know, in reference to to what a few of you have said, um, there are shipments happening right now. Um, Paige, as someone who is dealing, you know, directly uh, as an account manager with clients, are you still seeing, uh, you know, a lot of requests for things or, you know, there's stuff out on the road? Definitely still receiving incoming requests. I would describe it sort of as a wave as this happened, of like how that happened. It was a reshuffling of existing projects, of course, as we learned more about the situation. But that sort of subsided now. And now of the clients that are able to plan more long-term for exhibitions, of course, we're working on those projects. But for example, I mean, I know this is specific to institutions and museums, but I also work with private clients and I know everyone on this call does too, or galleries, for example. Um, so now would be the season when we would have a lot of work in the Hamptons area with installing homes and outdoor sculptures and et cetera. So I'm still receiving those requests and we field them as they come in and respond accordingly. And there's, there's obviously, as Jonathan mentioned, everything varies state by state, how we can conduct ourselves in our Connecticut facility versus New York versus Hamptons varies widely and changes honestly week by week and day by day. So it's a constant process, but um, so yes, things are ongoing, but it's really, it's become a lot about conversations and just staying in touch with clients and um, seeing what we can do. Derek, you want to, you want to add something? I guess it's kind of more of a question for everybody on the call, but it's, um, you know, we have a facility in New York, one in Philadelphia, one in Delaware, and now one in DC. And we, you could see the the time chain all started in New York. So whatever New York did a couple days later, it happened in Philadelphia. And then a week later it happened in Delaware. And then like 10 days later it happened in DC. So it kind of seems to me like, you know, New York is the gauge for us all to get back to work. Um, Because if New York's not, operational, then the rest of the art market has a real struggle on coming back together, just things coming in through JFK or whatever it might be, at least on the eastern seaboard. So just kind of more of a question for everybody, if everybody feels the same way, that that is a trickle down that starts with New York. Uh, actually, I, I can answer that. Um, it's, it's, it's going to be very asymmetrical because even if things started in New York the way you say they will, it's going to peter out here 
in a, a, a lot further down the road because we have way too many infections in the state, especially in the New York City area. So I think you'll find other areas of the country. I mean, they're already starting to open up here and there. I think New York, I mean, I don't, my crystal ball is a little vague on that right now, but I mean, I'm, I was feeling originally my gut reaction is like, we're not going to see anything until like the third week of August. And uh, then I hear people talking about May and June. So now I'm like thinking maybe early July, late June in New York, but that could mean DC is already working again. I don't know. Um. So we're not seeing a whole lot moving around a little bit. We did do a little bit of work in the last month, but not much. And I agree that New York is going to be, as Jonathan said, it's going to be a long road before it's going again. But there are people starting to stir. Texas is going to start opening the end of this week or end of next week. And Georgia is also starting to open, even though I don't know how they can really be doing it. So things are going to open in sporadic fits and bursts. And I think one of the issues that we've talked about is what happens if something, if a shuttle is going and the, the, all of a sudden the city is going to shuts down in the middle of a run. And it's something we're, we're still talking about. And there's really no good answer because you don't know when it's going to happen or where it's going to happen. But I, I'm a little more optimistic in that I think that more things will be happening towards the middle of May, end of May. But I think big things moving is going to be a while. I mean, I just, I don't know. And it also will depend on, for the museum world, if the museums are even willing to take big shipments. Where, you know, how can you do social distancing when you have a trailer load of crates coming off and some of them are not small? So it's something that we all have to sort of deal with and we should all deal with cooperatively and see we all figure it out together. Uh, Simon, Come in and then we'll have Fritz. Yeah, um, one of the issues that there is in the UK is um, the question of export licenses because the whole export licensing unit that belongs to the Arts Council, um, part of the government, is, uh, is closed. The office closed on the 20th of March and it's closed indefinitely. Um, they may open up again at the end of May, but then that's when they begin processing all of the export license requests, which can take up to five weeks. So if, if a US museum were asking for a, uh, a loan tomorrow, the earliest that we could see that that would be sent out if it required a license would be sort of mid-June, probably the end of June. And that's a sort of best case scenario. There's another issue, which is just the backlog of, of work that there will be in all of the government offices, as well as all of the shippers, that um, there will be so much that needs doing at the same time that it's going to cause some delay as well. So before things, uh, for things to come back to any kind of normality it is probably August, September. And I think that is the time frame that most museums here are looking towards. Yeah. And Fritz? All right, so the original question was, are there still shipments happening? And yes, there are shipments happening. Uh, and there are clients really itching and wanting to get things done. 
uh, all the time. So we're getting a lot of requests like, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? Every single day, things are, things, questions like this are coming in. So, you know, and, and that touches really a lot of different areas of what we are talking about. So number one, you know, uh, can, can it be done and can it be done safely? Number two is, should we do it? And those are really the two major questions. And, you know, the, the should we do it, how essential is it? Because uh, in, in, in a, lot of, uh, a lot of parts of this country, logistics is considered an essential business. So theoretically, all of us, at least in the United States, are allowed to operate to some degree or completely, to every degree. And when you think about it, you know, your, your UPS and FedEx trucks uh, are arriving at your doorstep every single day. So whatever that gadget uh, you're ordering on uh, on Amazon is that essential business? You know, is the artwork less essential than uh, you know the, the 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 book that you're ordering on Amazon? Who knows? No, you know, I don't have the answer for that. Uh, but these are decisions that we need to make. Uh, you know, as, as business owners and together with our clients, do you really need this? Does this really have to happen now? And then, if you need it, can it be done safely? Uh, and you know, then, you know, if it can be done safely, how would we execute it? Because nothing runs normal right now. Uh, you know, for example, I mean, in our world, we are used to having at least two guys on the truck. Uh, I will not dispatch a truck right now with two men on the truck. Uh, that's just not proper social distancing to put two people on the same truck for like hours at a time. That just doesn't make any sense. If you really need a second person on it, you know, maybe I'll have a follow car uh, behind it, but it will get very expensive. There may be a, a separate crew uh, wherever it is going to take something off the truck. So again, as much separation as possible between uh, between different things. If you even want to do it and if you even decide to do it. And then the other thing, uh, Jonathan spoke about that already, it's like we're a confederacy. There's different rules everywhere. It's like if you, if you operate in D.C., you have different rules in D.C., in Virginia, in Maryland, in every single... And within like, you know, half an hour, you, you, you have three different regulations that you have to follow. So, there's so, a lot of people that want to chat. Go ahead, finish up. No, no, go ahead, please. Uh, there's a lot of people that want to chime in. Plus, we're also an hour in, and I haven't asked any of the questions, and we got a ton of questions from the panel. Meg, can you be quick? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to kind of add on to that that I think um, one of the big projects coming out of this is going to be managing our clients' expectations about timelines and sort of redefining what those timelines look like with this new world that we're entering into. And I think that's something that maybe as an industry, we need to kind of focus on rethinking in a lot of ways. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> all right. So uh, we have a ton of questions from people that are following along on YouTube live. Thank you so much uh, for putting those out there. Um, I appreciate everybody being able to stick around. It's already been an hour, like I said. So uh, Robin, can you, uh, tell us some of the questions that have come in that we can address? Sure. Uh, one of the early ones was, how do these companies plan on prioritizing business once they are allowed to open up? Anyone have any thoughts on that? Paige. Well, that's something that we're talking about a lot, obviously, internally. Um, but to start, we are obviously going to prioritize um, projects that were pre-existing and, for example, have been paused as a result of the current circumstances or simply have been pushed down into the pipeline of services that we have. So just that's first thought of how we are going to prioritize those services. And of course, thinking um, really long and hard about what our capacity is going to be um, once we are able to be 
back up and running and how much more we're able to take on. But I just want to throw it out there. Anyway, Brian. I don't, I don't think prioritizing is going to be that big a problem because I think it's going to be very slow to begin with. Um, you know, we have projects that are uh, on the books and are, um, we'll start with those to begin with, but I don't think, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, financial difficulties for a lot of museums and galleries. And I uh, think that clients also are going to be more cautious about their expenditures uh, simply because there's so much, uh, the whole country being shut down, there's uh, money's gotten very scarce. So I think that it's going to be pretty slow for quite a while. Jonathan. Yeah, it'll also be slow because um, our behavior is going to have to change in advance of getting some kind of a vaccine. Um, we will need to do things that we've never had to do before, like not touch our faces, you know, keep our PPE on until we're in a place where we can safely remove it. And all of that, all of that behavior will lead to really slow services. Everything's going to take just a lot longer. Fritz? I see initially there will be actually, uh, once the doors open up again, the gates open up again, there are a lot of museum loans that are stuck all over the world. And there is going to be a high priority uh, to trying to get those things back to, the, to their home institutions. So I see a little bit of a glut initially on, uh, on trying to get that work done. Uh, and that will be priority, uh, that work, and then it will slow down after that. I agree. Business will not come back to 100% for a long time to come. Uh, we have to change the way we're doing business. But I see, uh, you know, initially there will be a struggle to get things done, and the struggle will be, you know, capacity issues uh, on, on many different levels, including uh, uh, air freight and airline issues. There, there are a lot of uh, flights canceled that will that, that will not come back uh, very quickly, and budgets that were given a year ago or two years ago for for some exhibitions are completely out the window right now because uh, air freight has become extremely expensive despite the fact that the fuel prices have come down so far. Uh, it's a capacity issue because a lot of freight in this world uh, uh, travels in, in in the bellies of white body. Uh, uh, passenger flights, they're all canceled. So all of that freight has moved to cargo flights and you can't get space uh, on a cargo flight unless you pay an extreme premium right now. And that will, be, that will last for a while. Yes, Anna? Uh, yes, I want to bring this input. I think it's, it's important almost in, in Europe or in Spain, because there is uh, like a very different different ways to, to understand uh, how we are going back to to the business. In one side, we have uh, or uh, state or official institutions and museums. They have different restrictions. They they can do by their their own decisions, but uh, the government and the ministries. Uh, are actually deciding and they need to follow um, and we have signed contracts we we need to perform for them so um, this is a different different way to 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 answer all their needs 
And uh, this field is more delayed than the others, than the private world. I mean, the galleries, uh, private collectors uh, didn't stop. And we are doing smaller things, but we didn't stop. Um, in that part of, of the business, we are able to, to choose or to prioritize what, uh, what we accept to do or what we can do. Because we have this time limit in our activity um, all the time when, when this Erte is, is still there, like happens to, to Hidja with their 90%. So we, we need to, to work in parallel these two worlds. Hmm? The administrative world that uh, obliges us to work the 30% of our time and the other, the other world, which is the, the, the needs, transport needs. And we, we need to, to program very well to combine these, these two things. All right, we're going to go for some more questions from the live chat. Robin, what's, uh, what's next? So this one just popped up, but I think it's a question a lot of people have. It says, about institutions who have already received loan shipments for exhibitions that have since been canceled, are the crates sitting indefinitely or are return shipments currently happening with you all? Maybe we can go to Marco uh, since he hasn't spoken much. Have you seen that? And then we'll go to Bob. Can you repeat the question? Sorry. Oh, yeah, no worries. Um, it says, so about institutions who have already received loan shipments or who you guys are working with for exhibitions that have since been canceled, are the crates sitting indefinitely or are return shipments currently happening right now? Um, you mean the return of empty crates or just in general if the loans are being returned? Think of the loans. I know that just talking to people amongst our community, there's just worry of where their artifacts are and kind of where they're handle right. Yeah, right now yeah, what we see is we get a lot of um clients that are uh, sending requests out to their uh, lenders in order to see if they can prolong the loan um that's that that's happening all around because in the netherlands um all the museums are closed um and they are not allowed most of them are, are not willing or allowed to do any any transport so they, uh, most museums are going to ask for permission to keep the loans in their museum, so ask for uh, an extension of the loan contract. Bob, are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, I agree. There are lots of extensions going on. Uh, we have had some requests for pieces going back, but there's really nothing moving. So either if something is going back, it's either sitting, it should be sitting with the museum, or as Jonathan said before, there was a bunch of disruption along the way when this first started and there were shuttles that just stopped and those pieces should be sitting in climate control warehouses wherever that trucker happens to be based. And I think that's, that's the way it is. And yes, and shows are also getting, we've seen shows being pushed out or we're getting emails saying, yes, the show is going to happen, but it's going to be a year from now. And so a lot of the loans um, haven't taken place. We, did have one institution that we do work with that has canceled all loans through the end of next year, through the end of 21, which I thought was extreme. Wow. Something that has come up in the, in the online chat that seems related to this discussion is 
if possible, will you see um, as a result of the low oil price uh, and the high air freight charges because of the scarcity of flights, will shipments, if possible, move from air freight to um, to trucking? I mean, it seems logical, right? Maybe there's even more availability. Yeah, Fritz? Domestically, there isn't a lot of art being shipped by air. Uh, and internationally, you're not going to truck it. It's still going to go by air. Uh, if yeah. anything, uh, you know, and, and not so much on the museum side, but more on the commercial world, I will see, uh, we will see more traffic uh, going towards ocean freight, more art being shipped by ocean freight, which uh, yeah. right now obviously is not something that's happening a whole lot. And I can see going forward to, that we will see a lot more of that. All right. John, then Simon. I think one of the things you'll also see is uh, institutions making decisions about couriers in the short run. As Fritz mentioned earlier, there's a lot of freight sitting out there at museums. A lot of institutions have loans that have been out and are stuck in places now, and there's going to be a decision made whether or not freight will be expedited to come back when cargo routes and passenger flights start operating, juxtaposed with what's the appetite for couriers to travel and stay in hotels and things like that. I think there'll be some new parameters around sending couriers and allowing couriers and sharing with institutions and trusting your sister institutions around the world to take care of the freight and for the foreign art forwarders affecting more supervisions, a little more uh, transparency with photographs and FaceTiming and things like that to get stuff moving again when it does open up because there will be government restrictions on travel to certain places for passengers. Um, we're already seeing freight moving on freighters and trying to get stuff moved around where we can get stuff out of warehouses and onto planes and things like that. So I think that's one of the first things you're really going to see as freight starts opening up again. Simon? Yeah, I wanted to mention uh, sea freight uh, because it's also hugely impacted by uh, cost increases. There's a shortage of reefer containers at the moment. Um, I think a lot of them are being used for, for, for medical purposes or by hospitals. Um, and um, costs for reefer shipments by sea freight are about four times what they would be at normal times. And um, the prices that you can get are also given on a sort of an ad hoc basis that they can change from day to day, from week to week. And it's very volatile. Mm. Uh, Jonathan, and then we're going to go to more questions from the chat. Yeah, I would also like everyone to think about the concept of hazard pay, because until there's a vaccine, any kind of uh, activity with couriers uh, for flights, if restrictions are lifted, you should think about what kind of hazard pay, because what happens if an employee of yours is uh, infected while they're traveling? That's a huge liability issue. I'll get it. <laughs> um, they're going live. Who is this? <laughs> We've got That's a call Brian. on the show now. <laughs> yeah. Brian's gone. I'll uh, <laughs> uh, Robin, uh, other questions from the 
from the, the chat section? Sure. This is one for more. Let's think of the future for a little bit, <laughs> just to think more positively. We're going to do um, so, future and then we're going to do couriers, okay? Because couriers is a huge one. Yes, for sure. So this one is, when should we start reforecasting future budgets with you all as shippers? Would you like the information sooner rather than later? Or should we wait for the market updates this summer? Or when should we start kind of looking at everything? Yeah, let's go for Meg. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, the estimates that we provide, I think the answer to that would be yes, all of the above, because I think it's going to be a work in progress in terms of the availability of materials and services. And I think that a good rule is that the more information you have earlier, the more you can keep things updated and work on these estimates as they evolve and as services become available, as materials become available again. So I think that um, this is going to be a, a lot more work in the short term is creating these budgets for shows and creating estimates for um, shipments. Does, does anyone not want the, the, estimates and the requests as soon as possible. Would anyone want clients to wait? Let's rephrase it that way. So it pretty much, uh, if you have it, uh, if you have a request, put it out there to your, to your shipper. Uh, Derek, you have a response to that? I think kind of following up on Meg was saying though, is that like the estimate you get will probably change though, right? Cause we don't know how we're going to operate. So, I mean, I think the, the question is, is accurate is, is it worth sending the estimate request right now? And I think to get all of the background information together so you can start building that estimate, but knowing that, you know, the social distancing or the crating or whatever it might be doing, it may be completely different than what we think. You know, obviously there's air freight, not knowing what that's going to be costing and all that kind of jazz throws everything out the window. So if you're getting that budget, it's really preliminary. And so who knows what the percentage of difference expense there will be at that time, you know? So I think it's, it's good to get preliminary information in and start putting it all together. But I'd also say that every estimate that's given for anything that's major right now, at least is probably a guesstimate more than a true estimate. Like we're used to doing. Got it. Brian, you want to add something? Well, I think it depends on the nature of the job. I mean, obviously if the, if you're shipping something, those, costs are going to not be accurate by the time the job actually happens. But for, uh, for crating and uh, packing and warehouse work and installations, sculpture rigging, things like that, I think you, you can estimate them and pretty much stick to the estimate because uh, a lot of those costs aren't going to change. You know, the materials um, are may may go up a little bit or something, but it's not going to be to the extent that the air freight has skyrocketed or, or, you know, these other costs have. So I think, um, you know, from, from our standpoint, we're more than happy to receive the estimates and uh, work on them and can probably hold to them. Anna. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm not saying that estimate is not important. Of course it is in part, but uh, nowadays, um, and due to, to the COVID, to find the logistic way, the proper logistic way, I think this is all goal. Uh, this is very uncertain uh, problem by, by the air companies now. 
they need to change the, the, the type of aircraft, the, the frequency. I mean, nothing is fixed now. It's really, I mean, they, they need to, to really move their fleet in, in favor to the business. And, and the business is moving in a different way as uh, has been uh, moving during years. So they, they need to, to adapt all, the, all these capabilities um, to, to, this, uh, to this business. And we need to follow. There is no option for us. I think we need to actually follow what air companies are doing and, and try to find the best way. We need time to do that. We, we need to, to talk with them to ensure that this, this flight is still going on, is, this is a, the right size we need, all these, these things that uh, in the past were like very fixed, very regular, but there is no regularity anymore now. Meg, you have a follow-up? And just to kind of um, add into what Derek was saying, which I think is kind of an important point, is the one thing that we don't know is how, um, you know, putting protocols in our workplaces uh, for social distancing and um, the wearing of PPE, how that's going to affect production of objects like building a crate or packing a crate. Um, those might, um, you know, whatever we end up doing might create a slower timeline or require fewer people working longer hours, things like that. And so I think that it's correct to say that a lot of those costs are going to be up in the air. But things like understanding how many crates you're going to need or um, what kind of packing method you're going to be utilizing, those are things that we can still talk about. And planning for those things now is going to be important so that when things do start up, we have a sense of um, what it's going to take to complete the packing specifications for each type of object. Let's move on to couriers now because this is a big, big topic right now. Uh, Robin, uh, do you have any questions related to that? I mean, a big one is safety, of course, but... Um, what, what are you seeing? I think a lot of people are chat. concerned about health and safety, obviously, is what we're seeing a lot of. Um, someone just popped in with one saying, do you foresee instituting higher rates or hazard pays for jobs that request on-site packing in institutions or lenders, private residences, which isn't really related, but kind of. I think there's just a general concern on how we're going to handle the situation. Go ahead, Fritz. You started, and then we'll go to Bob. All right. Well, um Couriers. One one of the thing is, uh, it's. I wonder when we can get couriers and cargo flights. That may be a while. Uh, so it may not even be possible for courier to be on the plane, uh, traveling with the art. And then uh, the next thing is, will the courier really want to sit on the truck with uh, uh, with with a team uh, in such a small confined space? I mean, there's one thing about social distancing. A lot of a lot of the stuff that we can do, we can put pro uh, proper protocols in place. But if you put a curry on the truck, that's it. It all goes, stays in the window. It doesn't go out the window. Uh, and uh, so all these things will need to be considered. And I think we will see uh, a lot more work done virtually uh, with, with 
FaceTime or Zoom conferencing and, and remote inspections, and maybe a lot of trust developing to, uh, between institutions of, uh, uh, you know, allowing, uh, you know, a, a borrowing institution uh, to do the outgoing condition report for the return uh, and, and uh, etc. So I, I think, you know, things will change and these are the things that we have to consider going forward. Go ahead, Bob. So we actually started talking about this in our office uh, last week, and I, I touched base with six or seven domestic truckers about, will they take couriers? And my expectation was they would all say no. And of the people I've talked to, only one so far has definitively said no. I have a, lot, I have a bunch of maybes. Some people haven't responded. Um, so I, I, I was surprised, to be honest, that the trucking companies would even allow it. Um, Jonathan can talk better to that. But from our standpoint, as a, as a freight broker in this, personally, I don't think I'm comfortable putting couriers on trucks for the courier's health and for the trucker's health. And one of the things we've talked about is it has to be equitable. If you're going to expect the courier, if the courier wants the drivers to wear a mask and gloves, then the courier has to be expected to do the same thing. And so the museums and all the vendors all have to be on the same page. You know, something we all have to work on. But I was, I was shocked at how many of the trucking companies were like, yeah, it's okay for right now. Go ahead, Paige, and then we'll go to Meg and then to Simon. I think what Bob mentioned about that anticipation or thinking about clients, not just in terms of couriers, but that's something that we've been talking about a lot internally because as our shippers or whatever service we're providing to, to foresee that our client or whoever we're interacting with might not have the same standards or expectations of PPE that we have established for ourselves or even going one step further and having extra material or equipment or supplies or masks or whatever it may be on hand to be able to provide to that person, I think is something that we're trying to establish. But of course that coincides with um, social norms and if that's appropriate to, to offer it to someone or not and how to handle that. So I just wanted to throw that out there. That's something that we're definitely grappling with. Go ahead, Meg. Yeah. I mean, I think I just would like to take this moment to encourage a possible idea for the future for, uh, my American peers in the group is that I think that it's going to be really important that we collaborate in our industry to create a universal set of protocols in terms of how our workers wear PPE, social distancing, and how we operate in these situations that up until now we've all kind of dealt with individually as companies and uh, as institutions, but going forward we should probably really think about collaborating to come up with a shared set of uh, protocols and uh, you know directives so that when our employees go to another institution or when somebody else's truck is coming into your warehouse, you can be assured that they will be following the same rules that you have laid out for your own employees, rules that will ensure that they're at least meeting sort of minimum st safety standards in the place of uh, you know being able to protect someone completely. We should be able to ensure all of our workers that when they interact with other people in the industry, those people are taking the same steps that they are to protect themselves from this virus. Go ahead, Simon, and then we'll go to John. Um, yeah, these 
uh, questions regarding the the, the expectations um, of museums to have couriers traveling in transatlantic trips uh, to accompany their works is um, something that's that's been discussed um, previously related to climate change and if it is really justifiable to um, have business class tickets for couriers to accompany the works. And it is a conversation that has um, become quite current in the last two years of people talking about, really, is that is that the case? Now, with, with coronavirus, this is just exacerbating the system to the point where, um, as Fritz said, institutions will need to think about technological solutions to this, um, also build the trust between institutions so that, um, that they have a response to this and they are responsible um, because it is a health issue and it is also a, a, a climate change issue. Go ahead, John. Uh, I was just going to mention as for the original question about hazard pay, uh, you know, we're seeing at the airlines right now that the cargo handling companies and the people inside the warehouses are getting hit especially hard around the country, especially at the busier airports. These are essential businesses are on the front lines uh, with couriers now right now not being allowed on freighters with no passenger flights and with, as Fritz mentioned, access to the warehouses probably being tied up. You know, it's more it's even more necessary for our guys to get in there. So we are offering hazard pay to a lot of our airport reps who live inside the cargo warehouses overseeing and handling freight is something to um, to keep in mind that as far as the supply chain goes, besides capacity and rates, there's workers and workers packed amongst each other in these cargo warehouses on top of each other. We've seen a lot of deaths out of JFK, a lot of people Colleen's get sick, skeleton crews working. So even when freight is moving, it gets stuck in there. And uh, it's even more important to have people inside there trying to get stuff done. But it is one of the more hazardous aspects on top of trucking and art handling and, and all that stuff as well. Um, uh, to those of you listening out there, uh, would your institutions offer hazard pay if you absolutely feel that you have to send a courier? Um, and would your institutions or maybe even the companies here uh, offer, uh, PPE, uh, you know, protective equipment, uh, masks and suits. If, uh, if you do feel like you have to send uh, a courier or, or handle a courier, just putting that out there. Uh, Derek, you have a, a comment? Um, well, I guess to that PPE, I think all of us would, you know, we're trying to get our protocols in place for the PPE, but even just getting PPE right now is really difficult. So we've had people trying yeah. to order that stuff for since March, whatever, March one. Um, and we still have, we've been struggling to get all that, but you know, honestly, and I think that we're in an industry where it's generally very caring people that we work with. Right. And so in that idea, like we know, I got to tell you, everybody's family to us. So like, I truly wouldn't send anybody out where I wouldn't send my wife or my father or whoever else. If it wasn't safe for them, I also wouldn't send out any of our crews, right? And I don't think any institution should do that for a courier either. And so I think if collectively, like Meg was saying, there's a, you know, you get this idea together where you're thinking about it as if you would treat your family. And obviously things, there's an evolution every three days. It's a completely different world every three days. So whatever that's like, as we get closer to coming back to the world that we're supposed to live in again, that, you know, as a group, there is uh, some standardized practices that would be based around the idea of how would you protect your family in that situation? 
Jonathan, and then we're going to go to uh, more questions from the chat. I wanted to tie this together with what Simon mentioned before. Simon and I were both on a, an environmental focused uh, um, uh, session back uh, last November in, D in uh, Philadelphia. And uh, this is an incredible opportunity we have here right now, because take a look at generally, take a look at the skies and the waters everywhere. I saw a, a video of jellyfish swimming in the canals of Venice. Um, this is what happens when you reduce carbon emissions. So, um, of course, if the people who uh, make a lot of money uh, by trading oil futures don't stop their practices, we're not going to see uh, renewable energy come up very fast. But it's an opportunity, and it's also an opportunity for us to take advantage of technology, because I think a lot of the courier needs can be handled by a lot of smart applications. Um, so a great opportunity could come out of this. Okay. Um, Anna, I'm going to, sorry, I got to go to more questions from the, do uh, you have a quick response? Uh, yes, just uh, to tell that I fully agree what John and Jonathan uh, said about technology. We, we have uh, an opportunity to demonstrate that there are like GPS uh, systems. We can provide a code to our client and they can follow all the, all the way uh, of the transport or making photos, videos, um, online uh, visual information. I think this would be great. And it could save a lot of money, that money that, that everybody will not have to perform the exhibitions. In a way, we could, if, if institutions could share a courier, for example, to, to the origin airport, and then the other institution from the destination airport. Yeah, exactly. Maybe you don't actually have to send somebody. You can trust maybe, more the people on the other end. I mean, right now you have no choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the same time... Yeah, well, you're not sending anything either. <laughs> at the same time, we can prevent uh, the virus. Robin, more questions? Sure. Another big topic of conversation is about just been about workflows, um, how when everyone starts up again, how we're going to be handled... I think the general fear is that there's going to be a giant bottleneck situation come September. So a lot of the people are asking just kind of how you all are thinking about workflows. All right, uh, Meg and then John and then Fritz. Well, I mean, I think from a productions uh, point of view where we're actually, you know, thinking about building crates and packing crates, um, we also anticipate that there might be a bottleneck, which is, um, one of the reasons I'm going to use this as an opportunity to re to say to all of our clients who are watching that this is a good time to start talking about our plans for that eventual future and talking about what the expectations for these jobs are going to be and start thinking about it. We might not be able to answer a lot of the questions of uh, timelines and how things are going to work once we establish new safety protocols and such. But I think that the more groundwork that's laid right now in terms of logistics planning, um, the easier the eventual kind of bottleneck will be. I mean, I would say that the fall is usually a pretty busy time regardless. So on, uh, you know, and that's obviously going to be probably very different this time around. But uh, it's something that if now we plan for some sort of framework for that period, we'll probably get through it a lot better. John? 
I think uh, for Masterpiece, as a, a for the most part, non-asset-based 3PL, we're spending a lot of our time right now collating information from airlines, airline handling companies, our in-house travel agents, uh, from various government sites and updates so we can be best prepared to see what we can offer and what's available at the time when stuff does start ramping up. I agree with most of the panel that there'll be an initial push of things returning from where they're going where they've been stuck for a while. And then as exhibitions ramp up, things will be moving quickly. So we're trying to ramp up an information sort of protocol with vendors around the country, foreign agents around as well as um, getting our turtle crate stock ready so that we have a, a quick and easy way to turn uh, crates around without too much work and time them or, or having to pack them. They're easily disinfected, things to that extent. Mark can talk to more, more of that aspect about uh, the the innovative and, and sustainable aspect of that as well. It gets stuff moving quickly, but we're trying to, in this time, up as much information as possible. So when stuff dark, start, does start coming in, we can react quickly and find solutions for our clients uh, right out across the board. Fritz, go ahead. So I, I just want to follow up on uh, this, this uh, John. I agree there will be, I think there will be an in, initial spike in, in shipments that need to happen right away that are in the pipeline already right now and have been stuck and, and will move. Uh, but then, uh, you know, as, as Brian Cook earlier said, it's, things are going to be slow for a while. The business is uh, not going to come back uh, to, to the level we have seen in the past few years for quite a while. So uh, so really what we have to prepare for workflows, number one, I need to keep my team together and engaged right now. And we're working very hard on doing that. And so we have, uh, you know, 80% of our crew uh, still fully employed and trying to keep them engaged every single day with training and, and, and keeping them sharp and get, having them ready for, uh, for when things open up again. And I certainly hope that's going to be sooner than later. Uh, and then the other thing is workflows. We really have to be the capacities and uh, in, in the various trade lanes uh, and logistics lanes. That's going to be the biggest issue. So really realistic expectations for everybody. What's possible? How fast can it be done? Uh, you know, things are not going to be very quickly how they always were. It will take more time. It will be more expensive and people will have to be a little bit patient. Uh, Marco, I want to ask this question of you, the same question about workflows, but uh, from a European perspective, especially where countries like Germany seem to be willing to start more slowly opening up and, uh, and any other Europeans after, after Marco, if you want to respond, that would be great. Right. Yeah. In, in Europe, the situation is a bit different than in the U.S., although there are also a lot of various restrictions per country. Like, for example, we have two offices, one in The Hague and one in, in Antwerp, um, but we are not allowed to go to Belgium. So we have to take, uh, we have to um, wait for all those restrictions to be, um, uh, to be released. Um, what we are doing now is we have a lot of staff that is taking compensation days, um, and we are also taking the opportunity to train our staff uh, what we would have usually done in a couple of months, we can now do in weeks because we, we will do it by Zoom and we've set up uh, extensive training courses to get everybody up to speed. Let's say the junior project, kind of, for example. Marco, what kind of training are you doing? Um, so we have a couple of junior project managers that are not uh, really trained yet to deal with air freight shipments. 
So we have the senior project managers do uh, come up with fake shipments, let's just say, and, and then practice them and get them through all the lists and all the requirements just to make sure that if things start up again, our full staff is up to speed with all the, with all the training. Um, so we offer trucking, storage and packing. And for us, it's a bit easier on the packing side because we have a large fleet of turtles that are just ready to go. So on that side, it's a bit easier for us um, uh, for creating. Um, and uh, also, if there is any question about, for example, crates that, need, that need to be disinfected, like the turtle crates are actually quite good for that because they can be easily treated with a disinfectant. Um, but in general, we, are, we have to wait until the, the regulations are released in the, in the different countries to see what we can do and what our clients are expecting um, yeah, if, they can, uh, if they can travel. I imagine, as many pointed out, that we do expect to see um, a big spike in shipments as, everyone, as things open up, but it seems that that spike will be very distributed, if you will, uh, because not every country will, will open up at the same time. So, for example, if Germany opens up soon, on, even on a reduced level, you know, then we'll see maybe other countries to follow. So, but I guess, you know, when you deal with it country by country, it might actually uh, be several little spikes as opposed to one giant spike. Does, does that seem plausible to you to everyone I think, I think that this would be extremely asymmetrical as you say and yeah. all of the assumptions of course that we're making today completely change tomorrow and and day after day after day uh you know if you take there are websites that you can look at you could see the activity in terms of international uh freighters moving in and out and as you mentioned and you know it's not all the same in europe like france is really really constrained uh, whereas Switzerland and Germany, Hungary, for some reason, has like a, a lot of freighters coming in and out of it. I don't know why. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so we're, we're pretty far into this now. It's been an hour and 40 minutes. And um, I do want to give everyone uh, a moment, if they, if they want, to address concerns maybe that they've seen from clients Um you know, if, if there's something that, you know, a question that you repeatedly see that you want them to know, maybe from your perspective, um, you know, any, any special ask of the, of the audience, is there uh, anyone that has anything to offer? Yeah, go ahead, Derek. I think, uh, you know, Meg was talking about earlier, it's just like an open line of communication. So I know there's some exhibitions that are going to cancel, some that are going to get added, you know, just knowing that everybody's talking, uh, staying in communication, knowing that, we're here, you know, just to be a resource, at least to just chat, you know, even if we can't provide answers because we don't know what the next step is, um, you know, at least I get a boundary of what we think we're coming back to. And then obviously, like Jonathan said, everything changes every day. So if we've got to change that boundary the next day, at least we have a perspective of what it's going to be like. Yep. And uh, Meg and then Bob. And just to kind of reiterate again, I know I've said it a couple of times, but I do think that um, you know, going forward, working with institutions and partner businesses, uh, peers in the industry to come up with what can look like a universal set of safety protocols and guidelines that we apply for all of our workers. I think that's going to be something that I would really like 
to see sort of encouraged. And I hope that um, we can all as an industry kind of reach out to each other and be transparent with the policies that we put in place so that we can share those policies. Yeah, go ahead, Bob. First of all, I totally agree with Meg, but what I would like everyone to remember is we all need a huge dose of patience. Um, museums are going to need patience with us as we try to work through their, everyone's problems. And we need patience. Us as vendors need to be patient with the museums who are also trying to work through things that they really don't have the answers to. And that we are all, as a collective business, we're all out for one thing, which is the safety of our people and the safety of the objects. And that's sort of the underlying piece of information that we all have to remember. Go ahead, Fritz, and then Jonathan. Uh, one thing we all have to remember, there's a lot of people being left behind right now uh, that are struggling. And so I think, I think one of the things that we, we need to think about, how, what can we do as a community to help those people? I mean, there are a lot of technicians that worked in uh, museums and galleries uh, with absolutely zero safety net, so we need to think about those people. There's service providers, smaller companies that have a really, really hard time going through this crisis right now. How can we help them? Can we, you know, can 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 we, as, as you know, Deedle International, we, we buy a lot of services from a lot of these companies. What can I do to help them with their cash flow to, to get them through this? Um, and, uh, you know, what... What can our clients do to help us get through this? So I have a lot of uh, uh, discussions with clients right now asking for discounts, uh, you know, on, on, on services that were provided last year. And it's kind of difficult to uh, entertain that right now. But it, these are conversations that we have. But really what we have to think about, like, who's left behind? What can we as a community, community also do to help those people? And I think that is something to, to, to discuss as well. And Fritz, you also started, sorry, Jonathan, one second. Fritz, you started uh, something for assistance for art handlers. Is that is that correct? Did I get that right? Uh, yes, that is correct. Uh, you know, we, we employ a lot of uh, art handlers, technicians uh, year-round. Uh, most of them, almost all of them are uh, artists uh, that work on a freelance basis. They work on projects to travel the world and, uh, you know, by choice. I mean, I always try to place them into permanent jobs when, when I can, but most of them by choice for, the, for many, many years now have been very happy to, uh, to, to be on the freelance circuit. And all of a sudden for them, absolutely the bottom dropped out. There's absolutely zero work. And so we were thinking about, and I consider a lot of them my friends, and we were thinking about like, hey, what can we do to help these people? Uh, and so it's not really much, but it's something to bring attention to them. Um, we, we created a website where we offer their, their artwork uh, uh, directly to, to interested buyers. Uh, we're also right now establishing a fund, uh, uh, an emergency relief fund, where they can apply for payments, uh, tax-free payments up to $2,500 uh, uh, for real emergencies. We're still establishing that, but so I'm, wor I'm working on that right now as well. And what's the website? Uh, it's uh, deedle.com. So the, okay, you can get it there. The, the, portal, the portal to the artist uh, page where you can buy artwork and I encourage everybody if you have a, a little bit of extra money to spare there's a lot of really absolutely amazing stuff on it go there buy it you will buy it directly from the artists so you will help these people directly uh, we are just really opening up the platform that's all we do okay Jonathan last guy okay for the yeah 
Um, I just want to remind everyone that even though uh, most of us have a fear of change, um, because we don't know what's going to what it's going to look like next year or even six months from now, um, don't be afraid of change because the opportunities are going to be huge for us, and we're a very adaptable species. We can we can really amaze ourselves. Let's look for these opportunities. Let's uh, let's be better than we were, and, uh, and maybe maybe uh, the landscape will completely change and. Our businesses, of all the art handling companies here, they may change. They may have vertical growth. They may have horizontal growth, contraction. Uh, museums may serve a, a slightly different purpose. We can't be afraid of change. Great. I think this is a, a good uh, final point, unless anyone else has uh, something else to ask, add. Well, uh, there stay, was one, um, sorry, go ahead, Brian. Just um, stay optimistic, uh, stay happy. We'll get through this. And, um, you know, museum community and all the art handlers and all of us in business, you know, we're strong people. And so I'm very optimistic about the future. And it's not going to be easy, but we'll, we'll get there. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this talk. Of course. Uh, Simon, there was one specific question aimed at you, um, this, which had to do, of course, with uh, any pressure that uh, Brexit might present on the situation. Well, any government indications? No. Um, the whole subject of Brexit has, been, has hardly been mentioned in the last month, which is quite... Uh, a breather for us actually because we were all sick of it but when that comes back when the question of the deadlines um are rethought because the deadline was the 31st of december when the transition period ends um if that is actually feasible now i don't know i believe that the european uh parliament and the uk politicians are doing zoom meetings like this to try to move it on but I would say it's going to be delayed or maybe has to be rethought completely. Um, and, well, I, I would like that to happen, actually, because I think it's all a little bit too fast now, especially with all of uh, these problems that have delayed everything. Yep, I hear you. Okay, with that, um, I want to thank everybody for participating. I want to introduce you all again. There are some people that joined late and didn't get the initial introduction. So just raise your hand uh, when I present you again. So thank you very much to Bob Simon from TCI, from Meg Colbert from BoxArt, Ana Tabuenca from SIT from SEAT in Spain, Simon Dent from Martin Speed in the UK, Marco Osterweig from Turtle in Hiskia, Fritz Dietl from Dietl International, Brian Cook from Cook's Crating in Los Angeles, Derek Jones from Atelier, Philadelphia, New York, Paige Armstrong from Crozier, Jonathan Schwartz from Isafat and Atelier 4, and John O'Halloran from Masterpiece International. Really appreciate everybody for, for joining in. I also um, want to take a moment to appreciate all of the ARC sponsors. Um, this is super important just because 
we, uh, we depend on them and none of this happens uh, without them. So as I mentioned, you know, ISAFET's the platinum sponsor. Gold sponsorship includes Cook's Crating, TTI Bovis, Arteria, Axial, Apiche, Lucidea, Atelier, Turtle. Silver sponsors include Masterpiece, Bonsai, Atelier 4, Cordova Plaza, Deedle, LP Art, Collector Systems, Box Art, Total Fine Arts, Willis Towers Watson, CSI, Liberty International Underwriters, Interlinea, uh, HTB, Huntington T-Block. Bronze sponsors include Anacom, Crozier, Edict, Global Specialized Transport, Martin Speed Mobile, PacArt, SIT, and TCI. Um, everybody deserves recognition because this is the, from the conference to all the programming, uh, ARCS depends on it. So thank you very much. And uh, thanks for making time to participate today. Um, as usual, we're going to release this conversation as a podcast later in the week, usually on the Friday after. Um, the podcast can be listened to and uh and 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 it will be released on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Please subscribe so you get all the latest episodes. And don't forget to give us a five star review. <laughs> yeah, we need that because uh, it uh, it means you uh, are pointing more people to the podcast. You can also um, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and whenever we go live, you'll get a direct indication or notification on your phone, your YouTube channel, saying we've gone live. So please remember us on there as well. Uh, lastly, if uh, you are a member of ARCS, as you should be, um, you can continue the conversation on the ARCS forum uh, via the website. And um, you can also find us on social media using the hashtag ARCSChat or at ARCSForAll. Um, and we can, keep, we can keep talking about this because uh, obviously questions will continue to arise. Um, we only have one more regularly scheduled ARCS chat in May. But uh, if, uh, you know, as the situation keeps uh, changing, uh, we might end up doing other special episodes. So stay tuned. Um, If anybody wants to reach out to a member of the panel, uh, you can always reach us through info at arcsinfo.org and we can redirect your questions if you don't already have uh, their emails. Um, And once again, thanks again to everyone for participating and everyone who... Uh, contributed via the chat and was listening. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. See you soon. Thanks, everyone. Go wash your hands. hands. Okay. We are offline. Good job, everyone. That was great. So at the max, we had 428 people watching, which is our highest number, which is awesome. Um, And the chat was insanely active. So good job for everyone. And everyone said thank you again and again to everyone who showed up today. So that was wonderful. Thank you. Once, once it's, it'll be up on the YouTube uh, channel pretty soon. And you should be able to go through and see uh, what people were saying on the chat portion. I'm going to so, capture um, it too. Cause sometimes it'll like randomly disappear cause YouTube's weird. So I'm going to like cut and paste it and actually just grab it all and throw it in a document too. So we have a record of it. So yeah, that way you can see um, all of the discussions that were going on. It might be uh, relevant to what you're doing. So um, I can't thank you guys enough for making time. It's uh, really appreciated. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. No, of course.